In this episode, I want to talk about why Christ wants us to be hot or cold, but never lukewarm. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. I am officially 20 episodes in with Onward in the Faith. And if there's one thing that I hope has become very obvious through everything that I've discussed, it's that the context of what the Bible says is as important as what is actually said. Uh, Way back at the beginning, I had an episode on how to read and understand the Bible. And step one of my kind of three-step guide that I laid out was that we have to understand the historical context of what is being said. In other words, who is saying it, who are they saying it to, and why. And, of course, the reason that we need to do that is that if we don't understand why a biblical writer is saying something, we're not really going to know what they said, because we're not going to understand who they were, why they chose certain words, maybe even the actual topic they were talking about. Instead, what we often risk doing is just reading a series of words in one or two Bible verses, applying our own understanding, our own context, our own word definitions, and then we try to create an interpretation from that, and we miss the beauty and the richness of God's word because we aren't really seeing what it says. We're just looking at it and saying, what does it mean to me? And so today, I'd like to talk about another passage in the Bible like that, one that is often very misunderstood because often we read and interpret it without understanding why it's being said. And so this particular passage is talking about temperatures. And as we'll see, it's talking about the temperature of water. And what I want us to do is not to get just a surface level understanding of what this verse is saying and then try to apply it to our lives. But instead, I want us to dive in deeper and understand why this is being said so that we can understand what it means, both to the people who originally read this passage in Revelation, as well as what it means to us. Now, the passage that I'm talking about is Revelation 3, verses 15 through 16. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, those are pretty harsh words. It's speaking to someone and saying that basically they're not hot, they're not cold, they're they're this in-the-middle thing that for some reason is making the speaker want to be rid of them, is saying that they're basically worthless. And now, if we read this passage without context— it's very easy to add our own metaphors and our own language understandings to what's being said here. So when it says that I wish you were hot or cold, but not lukewarm, when we think about someone being hot, we say that they have a great passion for something. You know, we kind of equate it to someone who is on fire and very excited about whatever it is they're hot for. And so Often, whenever we're talking about this passage and we get to the part about, I wish you were hot, what we want to come away with is, oh, well, you know, here Christ is saying that he wants people to be on fire for God. He just wants them to be burning. 
and just this this big, brilliant, shining light for people. That's what Christ really wants. And then when we get to the passage about being cold, we want to go the opposite direction. We think that when someone is cold to something, you know, if, if you have a very cold individual, they don't want anything to do with you. They aren't interested. They, they don't even want to associate with whatever it is they're being cold to. So if you think of like maybe someone who's angry at you, you know, they're, they might be very cold to you. They don't want to associate with you. They don't want to be near you. They don't even want to acknowledge that you exist. And so as we're trying to apply that understanding of a cold person to this passage, we might say something like, if you're not going to be on fire for Christ, then just walk away so you don't give Christians a bad name. Don't be on the fence. Don't kind of be either or, either be on fire or be nothing at all. And so then we see that as we continue this understanding of kind of personalities, we see, well, Christ doesn't want us to be lukewarm. That's that's worse. That's the worst thing we could possibly be. You know, because someone who's lukewarm is a fence sitter. They're someone who's trying to play both sides. They maybe like the idea of something. In this case, they may like the idea of Christ or Christian living or holiness, but not enough to get excited about it. They're just kind of wishy-washy. And so as we would try to apply it to our lives from there, we would say, well, don't be a lukewarm Christian. It's even worse than being cold and distant and wanting to separate yourself from God. And now on the surface, as we think about that, that sounds good. And it preaches really well because often this passage is brought up in order to call people to holy living and being on fire for God. But is this really what's being said here? Is, is God here showing us that there are three kinds of Christians? And obviously, if I'm asking that question, the answer is probably going to be no. And here's why. We can't read just a single verse of the Bible. We can't just read it and just assume that we know what's going on without reading what's happening in the context or considering the people that it was written to and things like that. And not only that, but when we are trying to interpret a verse in the Bible— because obviously we can't know everything historical, we can't know everything about the writer, but one kind of core fundamental thing we always need to ask ourselves is, is my understanding of this passage of Scripture consistent with what I see throughout the whole Bible? Because if God's Word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, if it is divinely inspired, then in its original writings, in its original inspiration, it's going to be perfect, and therefore there's going to be no contradictions in what we see. And so we need to compare Scripture with Scripture and say, this makes sense, but does it make sense in the context of what else God has revealed to us in Scripture? And so what I want to start off by doing is just taking this common understanding of this passage in Revelation and really just putting it to the test. And I want us to dig in and look at God's Word, not just here in what we're reading, but elsewhere and say, does this really line up with what we see? So the first thing that we can tackle is, does the Bible talk about being on fire for Christ? Does it talk about being passionate and just kind of burning brightly for him? Well, if we read in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And now this single verse really encapsulates almost everything we see throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. We see this constant call to devote ourselves to God, to submit, to love him, to pursue him, to 
set aside the things of the world to put off our sinful nature and our sinful desires and instead to put on Christ, to have a mind set on God above all else. Because ultimately, God isn't in the business of just making us happy. He didn't create us to give us a good life. God's greatest purpose for us is for us to be devoted to him, to be completely enthralled with who he is, and to realize that a life devoted to loving and serving him is the best possible way we could spend our life. And so with that, you know, we want to be on fire for Christ. We want to be consumed with our desire for holy living because that pleases him and that mirrors who he is. We want to be consumed with serving him and devoting our lives to being swept up in everything that God desires instead of what we desire. And ultimately, Christ, for the Christian, Christ is our primary focus. He is our greatest desire and our greatest satisfaction. And so everything we do in life is, ideally, whenever our sin nature is not getting in the way, everything we do is driving us towards setting our eyes on those things that are most important. And we see Christ remind us of that in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So over and over, when we look throughout the Old Testament and we see where they are placing their treasures, where they're finding their value and their worth and their salvation, we know that that's where their heart is also. When their heart is with God, they are turned to God. They are devoted to God. When their treasure and and everything that they desire is found in things of the world, then that's where everything about them goes as well. That's where they set their hearts. That's where they set their affections is on the people around them and the culture and this temporary, broken unsatisfying world that we live in. And so ultimately, when we're asking the question, well, does does God want us to be on fire for Jesus Christ? Yes, absolutely. God wants our satisfaction and all of our desires to be aimed directly at Christ because he can fully satisfy. He is the only thing in the universe that cannot let us down. Our health, our money, our relationships, our intellect, our emotions, everything that we try to find comfort and salvation in will ultimately let us down. They can't fully satisfy, but Jesus Christ can. And so, yes, we need to be on fire for Christ. God wants our hearts and our minds, and really he wants every aspect of our lives. And when we give that to him, when we're on fire in that way, we're going to find the greatest satisfaction and the greatest peace regardless of what life throws at us, regardless of what happens, being on fire for Christ ultimately means that everything that we love and everything that we're pursuing is found in the person of Jesus Christ alone. But what about the rest of this passage in Revelation? We see that, yes, God wants us to be on fire for Jesus Christ, in a manner of speaking. So what about this whole idea of, I'd rather you be cold and distant rather than lukewarm and sitting on the fence and not making a concrete decision. Is that found in the Bible also? And as we're going to see, while that understanding sounds good, because if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you know that those who are what we would call lukewarm do a lot of damage to the name of Christ because they seem to represent Christ, but they're serving the world. 
people who have been hurt so much by religion are often at the hands of people who aren't fully devoted to Christ. They talk the talk and they seem to walk the walk, but their hearts aren't truly in it. So again, on the surface, this makes sense that for the sake of making Jesus Christ famous for being good ambassadors and representatives of him on earth, it would be better that if we're going to take his name, to take it and serve and be true and genuine. But here's the problem. If we take this idea of it's better to be a cold Christian than a lukewarm one, if we take that to its furthest conclusion, we're teaching something that is found absolutely nowhere in the Bible. Because what we're ultimately saying is that God would prefer for us to hate Jesus Christ, to completely rebel against him, rather than be weak, rather than sit idle. He's saying that either you are 100% devoted to me, everything about your life is on fire, or get out of my face. And we have to ask ourselves, is it truly God's greatest desire for us to completely cut ourselves off from not just serving Christ, but also the church and anything dealing with the God of the universe? Is it really his desire to just completely cut ourselves off rather than being on the edge and being surrounded by the things of God and being with other believers who can encourage us to grow? Now, of course, we'd never say that. We would never say, hopefully we'd never say, I guess I can't account for everyone who interprets this. But for the most part, people who understand this particular interpretation would never actually say, well, if you're not going to be 100% devoted, if you're not going to be on fire, then get out. We would never say that, but that's the only conclusion we can reach if that is how we're going to understand this idea of being either hot or cold and never lukewarm. But now let's look at the Bible. Let's compare scripture with scripture and see if God's word and God's character agrees with this idea of being all in or being nothing at all. You know, don't be weak, don't waver. So the first place we can look is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So if we look here, God's dealing with how we would define lukewarm Christians, those who should be teachers, who should be leading others, but instead they're babies. They're incapable. They need someone to spoon-feed them the truth of God and to help them discern good from evil because they haven't been trained to do it. Their minds aren't set on Christ so much that they have the wisdom and the biblical worldview that allows them to view the world as Christ views it. But what we need to notice here is that there's no idea of saying either change or get out. Instead, this is a call for us as Christians to realize that we need to be mature, that we should always be growing in our spiritual maturity, and that not only that, as we're growing, we should be turning around and leading and guiding and boosting up other believers who have come from where we just were, those who are weak, who are struggling, who don't maybe understand 
how to think biblically, how to set their mind fully on Christ and to surrender every area of their life to him. But there's no hint or concept here that if they're not going to do that, they need to get out. Instead, it's just a flat-out call. There's there's no if, ands, or buts about it. Paul here, or I, I'll say Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is basically saying, you are immature. Grow up. Get mature. There's not a question on if you don't do it or else. It's simply saying, this is what's expected of you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not mature yet. You need to be. And we can see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And if you've heard me talk about 1 Corinthians, the letter is basically just one giant rebuke. It's, it's dealing with a very messy church. And here we're going to see that these Christians are, again, being chastised for their spiritual immaturity. So here Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? So again, we see this call to basically just stop being immature, stop thinking like children, and grow up in maturity in Christ. You know, and it's not just Paul. Peter, in Second Peter 3.18, encourages his audience to keep growing. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So again, at the end of Peter's letter, he's simply calling for people to continue in their maturity, because what else would they do? There's no other path for them to take than to keep moving onward in their faith. We see this with the disciples. They recognized that their faith was weak, but they didn't despair. They didn't give up. They didn't say, well, I'm not getting it. I'm not strong enough, so I'm going to walk away. In Luke 17.5, it simply says, And the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So we could keep going, but on and on, what we're going to see throughout the Bible is that spiritual weakness and immaturity are not a good thing, but they're expected. Because, of course, people are going to be spiritually immature. God doesn't save us and give us perfect understanding and wisdom. That's why in James 1, it talks about, If you lack wisdom, ask for it. There's this understanding that we, when we are first saved, are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the work is just beginning. Not our work, but the work of God in us. We're going to keep walking. We're going to keep stumbling and struggling. But the Christian life is one that is marked with kind of an upward trend where we're going to have ups, we're going to have a lot of downs, but always, always God is pulling us higher and higher and closer to being more like our Savior and less like the world that hates him. And so this idea that we can't be spiritually weak, we can't be one foot in, one foot out, just doesn't make sense because that's the natural reaction of a person who was once in love with the world and now is in love with Christ and is trying to understand what is real, what is true, what is good. And the problem comes when that person sits there and doesn't continue growing. But the only thing they can do, the only thing they're called to do, is to basically grow up, stop that, and keep pursuing Christ. So the idea of God hates a lukewarm Christian, that that's the worst thing we could be, again, doesn't make sense, because a lukewarm Christian is simply an immature Christian. And in every 
aspect of who we are. We all have immaturity in some capacity. We're going to have some immaturity until we die or Christ returns and we have just this sin nature removed and then we can live the life and the eternity that God has always had planned for us. But now what about the idea of cold Christians? Is it better for us, according to God, to be in complete rejection of him? Is is there precedence in God's word for Christians to be saved, to be redeemed by Christ, to have their sins atoned for on the cross, and simply walk away and just be done because they weren't willing to commit all the way? Well, if you pause this podcast and go check out Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 24, you can read the parable of the sower. And if you're not familiar with it, again, pause. It's 24 verses, you know, take a few minutes. But ultimately, what we see in this parable that Christ gives us is that as the gospel goes out, there are going to be some who reject it, and there are going to be some people who seem to follow, who seem to be on the path of righteousness, but ultimately they fall away. And in this parable, these people have the exact same destiny. It's not that someone gained salvation and lost it. It's that there are those who outright, flat out, completely reject Christ. And there are those who kind of go along for the ride, but they're still enemies of God. And for whatever reason, they've tried to walk the walk and talk the talk. But ultimately, it's not going to stick because it's the Holy Spirit that keeps us in this, that keeps us growing. It's not our own effort. You know, if you got saved later in life, you know that trying to be a good person, trying to please God on your own is exhausting. And there's no point in staying in Christianity if there's not something else you're trying to accomplish. We we just can't live this life on our own. And so ultimately, those who appear to be saved and walk away, we aren't going to know because there are those who walk away, but God's not done with them. But in terms of just this parable that we're seeing here, those who walk away and never return— and in their hearts have nothing to do with Christ, were never saved in the first place. They were never redeemed. They've always been the enemies of God. So them turning around and acting cold to God is terrible because it's not that this is what God prefers. It's literally completely against his will for them to live in rebellion, whether they reject it outright or whether they try and fail and walk away. That's not pleasing to God. And we can see this again in 1 John 2.19, and this talks about the spiritual health of those who walk away from the faith. And it says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Again, we see those who walk away, those who are cold to God, were never part of Christ in the first place. And we can keep going. We can look at Matthew 17 verses 15 through 20. And here Christ is talking about fruits, about how what we do is a reflection of what's in our hearts. And those who are enemies of the gospel, even though they fly the Christian flag, aren't really with Christ. It says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. So here we have those who talk the talk or walk the walk, 
but they do so apart from the gospel. They don't understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually all about. They don't understand holy living. So they appear right. They may even say things that sound good. But the mark of a false teacher isn't someone who is outright blasphemous against God, but someone who doesn't understand God. And so when they talk about him, there's something off. There's something not quite settled. They use the Bible. They paint God in a way that's not quite right. They make Jesus out to be someone who he's not. You know, that is how we understand false teachers are these people who appear to be in the faith, but aren't actually in it. They're not a part of it. And sometimes they will walk away because it just gets completely exhausting. And we've seen that a lot in the past few years. And I'm sure if we looked back, that's just going to be a consistent thing is that these people who seem so on fire for God, they walk away because they were just never a part of it in the first place. And so we just see this over and over again. You know, you can go check Matthew 12, 34 through 35. And what you're going to see there is that basically what is inside us always comes out. What's in our hearts is going to be shown through our actions. And so what we do is going to be a reflection of our heart. So if we take that understanding that our actions show what's inside, you know, you had people like the Pharisees who appeared very religious. You have people in the parable of the sower who outright rejected the gospel or eventually walked away from the Christian life altogether. And all of these people have something in common. What they do, what they say, shows what was truly in their heart. And so this idea that God would want us to be cold to reject him, because that's better than just being a fence sitter, that's better than being kind of on the fringe of Christianity, we don't see that. Because a person who we would mark as being cold to God, someone who is saved but outright rejecting him, there's no foundation for that in God's word. Instead, someone who does that, if we're just looking at God's word, if we're seeing what he says about those kinds of people, those people are very often those who have nothing to do with God in the first place. They've never been in Christ. And again, I'm not trying to paint in broad strokes here. I know that there are people out there who, you know, maybe in your own life seem to have completely walked away from Christ, and now there's that certain terror of, well, maybe they've never been part of Christ in the first place. And just from my own life, I can tell you that what you see isn't always what's truly going on. So keep praying for those people, but sometimes a person who seems to have walked away from the faith needs prayer for their salvation, but sometimes they just need prayer for this season of their life to end so that God will draw them to repentance and bring them back to Christ. Not that they've ever left him, but for months or years, maybe this person is in rebellion. But that's just a side comment. I just wanted to alleviate any fears that might be out there as I say all that. But ultimately, as we compare all this and take this idea of hot and cold and lukewarm, we're going to see that really there are no degrees There's no temperatures of Christianity. All of us, if we are saved by the blood of Christ, if our sins were nailed to the cross with our Savior, we are all on a lifelong path towards spiritual maturity. Now, some are going to be farther along than others. Some are going to be moving at a faster pace than others. But ultimately, even if we can't see it, even if it seems impossible, God, through the Holy Spirit in our lives, is constantly shaping us and drawing us to God, because what else is he doing? What else could he do except to make us more and more like the Savior who redeemed us? Because that's 
That's ultimately the Holy Spirit's role in our lives right now. And so as we think about that, the Christian life doesn't have options. The Christian life either has obedience or disobedience. So either we can continue growing, continue pursuing holiness, continue to set ourselves apart from the world and focus on God and not the things that his enemies call good, or we need to set aside sin so that we can get back to growing and loving holiness and becoming more like Jesus Christ. But ultimately, everything about the Christian walk is moving forwards. There's no backwards. There's no middle of the road. There's no walking away and and God desiring that. Either you're moving on or you're in sin that needs to be repented of so that you can keep moving on. So yes, we need to be, in a word, on fire for Christ. Being lukewarm, again, based on that original understanding, is not a good thing because that's just a sign of spiritual immaturity. But there's just no such thing as a cold Christian. There's just Christians who are in sin and need to repent, or there are enemies of God who are on their way to hell, who are in sin and need to repent and ask Christ to save them so that they can then begin their own walk towards spiritual maturity. But God, never in his word does he give us any idea that his desire for any believer, for any of his children, there's no hint that it's his will for us to live like one of his enemies. Everything that God does is calling us out of that kind of living. So if that's not what's going on here, if Christ saying, I wish you were hot or cold, but not lukewarm, if the common interpretation of that is wrong, then what's really going on here? Well, like I said at the beginning of this, context is the most important thing that we can try to understand before we start interpreting a passage and especially applying it to our lives or the lives of other believers. So if you remember in one of my earlier episodes about reading the Bible, we took Jeremiah 29, 11, very famous coffee mug Bible verse. And by looking at the context, we were able to get a better understanding of what was happening. And then we were able to take this very misunderstood verse and properly interpret it and apply it to our lives in a way that brings glory to God and not ourselves. And we're going to do the exact same thing here. So in terms of who's being addressed here. So this early part in Revelation, it's being written to the seven churches in the Asia Minor region. And this particular passage is talking to a church in Laodicea. And if you read what's being said to all these churches, this church that we're talking about now receives the harshest rebuke of anyone. Not not everyone gets good things said about them, but there's really no good to be said here about this particular church. They are they're getting the book thrown at them, so to speak. And now when we try to understand what's being said to them, and especially with the temperature thing. It, to me, it's actually really fascinating. So the idea of temperature to them, their minds would have immediately gone to water temperature because the temperature of water played a very key role in their daily living. And so now I want us to understand what that looked like for them because when we understand them, it lets us understand what was written to them and how they would have understood it and how they would have interpreted it. So in this area of Laodicea, they had primarily two sources of water. The first source was a nearby river that was fed from a source that was several miles to the south of them. It was a long way away, but they had this river kind of outside their city that they could access. 
And then they also had some hot springs that were near them. So two sources of water, a river and the hot springs. Now here, when Christ is talking about this metaphor of temperature, to them, they weren't taking our modern understanding of being hot and on fire or cold and distant or lukewarm and kind of either or. To them, it would have had a much more significant meaning because they understood that hot water was useful. You could use those hot springs to relax. You could clean your dirty garments. You could purify things and kind of sterilize them in a way. So, of course, Christ would want them to be hot in the sense of being useful. But cold water was also useful to them because we need to remember that in a culture without air conditioning, if you're hot and miserable, one of the best and most refreshing things in the world is a glass of cold water or even just being able to sit in cool water and just kind of cool off for the day. You know, so just like hot water was a good thing, when Christ is saying he wishes they were cold, they would have taken it the exact same way. Be hot, be cold, just like the water in your lives. I want you useful. I want you necessary. I want you to do things that are good and valuable. And these people knew that being hot or cold wasn't an either-or thing. It was literally Christ saying, I wish that the things you were doing brought glory to me. I wish that you were walking in obedience. I wish that you would submit. But instead, Christ says that they are lukewarm. And they were very familiar with why lukewarm water would make someone want to vomit. First of all, like I said, the source of their river was located several miles south. And now where that water started was nice and cool. It was refreshing. It was a good, clean water source. But as that water source would make that long trip towards the city of Laodicea, it would start warming up. And by the time it got to them, that water was lukewarm. There was no hot for it. There was no cold for it. It was just this unappetizing temperature to them. But not only that, as people have kind of studied that area, they've found that that river section outside the city had two other issues to it. The first of all is that it had some nasty sediment down at the bottom of it, and there were also mineral deposits. And so the problem wasn't just lukewarm water in general, but the lukewarm water that they were familiar with was nasty. It was basically undrinkable. And so to them, the idea of being compared to lukewarm water was to say that, wow, we are being compared to something that when we drink it, we want to vomit it out. We want to spit it out. We don't want to put it in our bodies. And that explains what Christ is talking about here. Because now that we understand that context, now that we know what purpose and impact this discussion of temperature had on them, knowing that it's talking about water and that hot and cold water is good and lukewarm water isn't just bad, but it's terrible— Let's read Revelation 3, verses 15 through 16 again, understanding this verse in the same way that these people would have. So again, Christ says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, why does Christ say this? What is it about this church that was so disgusting that there was no value to be found in their spiritual lives. Now, there's some debate on 
the actual spiritual health of this church. There are those who would say that they had just fallen into such gross and terrible sin that they were Christians who were indistinguishable from the world. Or there's the idea that this was no true church at all, that they aren't being criticized as Christians who need to get back on track, but as unbelievers who are falsely representing the gospel. And I fall on that second one, believing that while there may have been some believers here, in general, this church in Laodicea was marked as worthless, as bringing no value to Jesus Christ, because they weren't of him. And I say that because we can read about another problematic church that was in Ephesus, and they were rebuked in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I'll leave you to pause this and go read that yourself, but when you read it, what you're going to see is that this was clearly a group of believers who had fallen into sin. And here they are rebuked, not just for living in sin, but ultimately for abandoning their first love. And so when we compare these two problematic churches together, I think it becomes clear that it wasn't just that this church in Laodicea with this nasty water source, it wasn't just that they had abandoned their first love, but that they never had that love to begin with. For whatever reason, this church that was started didn't continue. Something happened, something crept in where these people started waving the banner of Jesus Christ, but they weren't actually part of him. They were ultimately, they were bringing a bad name to Christianity because they were claiming to represent someone they didn't represent. And so this lukewarm church, just like the river outside their city, was completely useless. They brought no nourishment. They brought no rest. They brought no value to the gospel. And so what was going on, though? What was so bad here? Well, ultimately, this church was consumed with worldliness. And we can read this in Revelation 3.17, and this takes place immediately after Christ talks about vomiting them out or spewing them out of his mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So this is a stern rebuke, but it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Oh, they were people who were swept up with materialism. They were obsessed with their money. That's not the worst thing. I mean, look at what was going on in the Corinthian church. I mean, they were given over to gross sexual sin. Why is Christ reserving such harsh words for this church who was basically just a little too focused on getting stuff? Because ultimately, they were living a secular worldview with a Bible in their left hand. That's all they were doing. They were finding their satisfaction and ultimately their salvation in their wealth. Because Christ is saying they think they're something. They think that, that their safety and their righteousness is bound up in their money and their material goods. And they don't even realize that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. They have nothing going for them, spiritually speaking. And again, I think that's because they weren't even children of the king who were in rebellion. I believe that they were enemies of the king who thought that they were part of the family, not maybe even realizing that they were living as enemies. And we see throughout God's word that we are warned against this kind of living, this embracing of secular and worldly ideologies and finding value in the things that the world finds value in. So James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, talks very specifically to this. It says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
is not to source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So now as Christians, we know that we have got to be so careful about how we live our lives because we are in the world. We aren't immune to being influenced by it. And to a degree, it's even a good thing for us to enjoy this world because this world reflects the goodness and the grace of God in some areas of it. But when those things become ultimate, when they replace God, when they become the most important things, when our money, our health, how we perform in sports or competitions or things like that, when those become central, when we get angry, when we get jealous, when we get bitter, that shows us who our God really is. And it's not the God of the universe. It's us. It's our pleasure. We worship ourselves and get angry when we don't get what we feel we deserve. And so as believers, we're warned against this, not because it's a bad idea and not because it's basically harmless, but, you know, some stodgy Christians just want to ruin the fun. No, God calls us against this thing and he constantly reminds us to come out from the world because ultimately it is dangerous for our spiritual health. But as Christians, again, that's a mark of immaturity if we let the world dictate where we find happiness and satisfaction. But this church in Laodicea, I think, was just marked by this kind of living. Everything about them reflected the world around them instead of the light of Jesus Christ. So it's not that they were necessarily Christians who had fallen into sin, but people who were in sin trying to act like Christians. And so we see that in this fairly brief and short rebuke of this church, ultimately their biggest issue wasn't anything huge. It was just finding value in their stuff. Their savior was their wealth and their comfort. They were trying to blend their Christian life or whatever they thought it was with the world around them. You know, they were trying to make the world their friend. And as we saw in James, if you make the world your friend, you make God your enemy. You set yourself against God by making yourself in favor of the world and the things they find valuable and finding satisfaction in things that don't matter ultimately. And so this church, they weren't rebuked for having a weak faith. They were, have, they were rebuked for having no faith in Christ at all. They treated Christ and his church as a way to serve themselves. They, like I said, they were their own gods, their success— Their wealth, their prosperity made them feel righteous. It made them feel good. And they assumed that they were in right standing with God because they had material blessings and material goods. But ultimately, because nothing in their worldview lined up with God's word, they were worthless. They had no value to Christ. Whatever good they felt about themselves was seen as garbage to the king of kings. So now... As believers, though, what do we learn about this? And I think that as those who maybe are stuck in worldliness and we have some immaturity in us, I think there's a lot for us to learn from this church who was filled with false converts. You know, we see that they had a false assurance of their salvation. 
They were trusting in everything in the world and in themselves. They were trusting in everything for their salvation and their satisfaction except for Jesus Christ. Maybe they prayed the prayer. Maybe they said the right Christian words to people around them. Maybe their life even looked good. But ultimately, their life wasn't surrendered to Jesus Christ. And because of that, because they weren't giving up things in the world that may have been good but had become ultimate in their lives, because they weren't willing to exercise spiritual self-discipline or even deny themselves of pleasures for the sake of Christ, because they weren't willing to make pursuing the cross in a way that lines up with God's word, because that wasn't their highest priority, whatever good they felt they had was nothing. And so, one, we need to make sure that's not us, that just because we're in the church, just because we're talking the talk, walking the walk, just because everyone around us says that we're part of the body of Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that that's true. We need to work out our salvation for ourselves, as Paul says, because we don't want to be those who get to heaven and say, Jesus, I read the Bible every day. I went to church all the time. I gave money. I was a good person. Let me into heaven. We don't want to be the people who say that and for Christ to say, depart from me. I never knew you because it's not enough for us to know the name of Christ. It's not enough for us to have people around us say that we are saved, that we are redeemed, that we are part of the family of God. We need to make sure that when we say we trusted Christ, that we've repented and asked him to save us, that we really did it in a way that lines up with the Bible. But let's hope that that is us. So what else can we learn? A big takeaway that I really hope people get out of this passage is that there's only one kind of Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, you're not hot or cold or lukewarm. You just are. You are a child of God. You are redeemed. You are called to holy living, to surrendering everything in your life to Christ, to making him central in your decisions and your thoughts, because that's what we're called to. That's why Christ saved us. He didn't save us to make us happy, but ultimately to bring the highest glory to God. And it's a beautiful thing because Christ didn't come to earth and suffer and take on our sins and be punished by the God of the universe for every lie or angry word we've told. Christ didn't come for all that just so that we could sit and wallow in that same sin that he died for. He didn't take God's wrath for our sin so that we could keep pursuing it. Christ ultimately set us free from sin so that we can do the one thing that without him we could never do, and that's pursue God. So to love him with all of our heart and with all of our mind. And Romans chapter 6 says so much about the purpose of our lives. I'd really encourage you to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to take a snippet out of it. And this is Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 18. And this really speaks to our call as believers and why I say that there's only one kind of Christian. It says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." 
So this passage in Romans 6, and really the entire chapter of Romans 6, is our high call to holiness, to pursuing the things of God, not just feeling good feelings, not just having a good time at church, but dedicating every day of our lives to Jesus Christ, to bringing him glory, to serving him, to finding our ultimate satisfaction in who he is. Because we don't want to be part of one of those warnings that we see in the Bible about those people who need to separate from the world. We want to be people who love that, who desire to be set apart from the world, despite being broken and still sinful and still having that sin nature. We want our lives to be marked by loving God and pursuing Jesus Christ. And we see that in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So as Christians, as those who love Christ, we want to separate ourselves from the world. We don't want to find our value or our safety and assurance, or ultimately, we don't want to find our satisfaction in the same things as those who hate Christ. Because anyone can love money. Anyone can love pleasure. Anyone can love sitting and watching TV or playing on their phones or getting lost on social media. Anyone can find value in the opinions of others. And if that is what we're doing, then we are pursuing the same things as those who hate Jesus Christ, who hate God, who are in absolute rebellion. Why would we align with a worldview that is set against the one person in the universe that we love the most? Why would we look to the world to tell us what is good and right and worth pursuing? They have to pursue these things because if they're not going to worship God, they have to worship something. But we aren't like that. We are not slaves to sin like they are. We are not bound and required to follow those things. We've been set free and not set free so that we can do what we want. We've been set free so that we can then, like Romans says, become slaves to righteousness, to have that be what controls our lives, to have righteousness be what sets our path and changes our desires and what molds our minds. And again, we see this in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to be different. We're called to be weird. You know, Christ set us aside for a purpose. He saved us for a reason. Because the Christian life isn't about getting our get-out-of-hell-free card so that we can then go on and continue living like the world. That's immaturity. That's childishness. That is foolishness. That is what we are warned against over and over in God's Word. God gets no joy. Christ gets no glory when we live our lives day after day and we are barely distinguishable from those who are still under God's wrath. Going to church doesn't suddenly make us weird and different from the world. Reading a Bible verse every day doesn't make us unique. Saying a prayer at dinner doesn't mark our lives as devoted to Christ. Those things are good, but they aren't everything there is. We as Christians are called to surrender everything. We are called to love the truth of God, to devote everything in our day to him. Even if we aren't directly, you know, in the Bible or praying or talking to people about Christ— Our decisions, our hearts, everything about us is called to be set on Christ and to go further and further towards holiness instead of worldliness. Now, I just want to end this with a fairly lengthy passage, but I hope you'll stick with me because 
ultimately, this church that we read about in Revelation, they weren't walking in the way that Christ calls Christians to. Any church that gets rebuked obviously isn't doing that. But they had given in to living a worldly life. They had basically abandoned the truth of Christ and made him just something that made them feel better or whatever their motivation was for doing what they did. They had nothing to do with Christ other than maybe saying his name. And as believers, we don't want that to be us. We want to walk in the way that we are called to walk. We want to please Christ, not because we are good people and we do good works. We want to please him simply through obeying and loving him and letting the Holy Spirit be the one that does the work in our lives. And I want to end this by just thinking about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So again, I really encourage you, pause this, read this passage of scripture, Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. There's a clear distinction for what we do in our lives. We can either walk like the enemies of God, or we can walk like the children of God. There's no blending. There's no mixing. Either we are choosing to love the world in what we say and do, or we're choosing to love God. And as a follower of Christ, don't let your life be marked by your sin nature. Don't let the things you do, the things you desire, the satisfactions you have, don't let your day-to-day life be barely different from those who live in moment-by-moment rebellion against Jesus Christ. Instead, as Christians, let's surrender to him because he deserves it. Now, how do we do that? How do we surrender to Christ? How do we start living this holy life? How do we be different and weird compared to this world all around us that loves everything except God? One of the first things we can do is just identify the things that we place above Christ. Are we putting too much emphasis and concern on our family to bring us satisfaction, entertainment, money, our health, our attractiveness? Is it our spouse that gives us value? What in our life are we turning to for happiness or safety when things get hard? That tells us what we worship. What do we get angry when we don't get? Is it excelling in sports or school? Is it doing well at work? If if we get angry when we don't get those things, that tells us what we're worshiping more than Christ. What are we afraid of losing? What would devastate us to lose? If there's something that would completely end our lives because we lost it and it's not Jesus Christ, that tells us what we place above him. So identify those things. Find what needs to be surrendered to Christ. And then just give those things to him. Pray, repent, 
Ask Christ to show you how to find satisfaction in him and not those things. And this isn't going to be a one-time thing. Day by day, I'm fairly certain there's not a Christian alive that isn't still identifying things in their life that they place above Christ. We're not going to be perfect, but our goal isn't perfection. Our goal is simply Jesus Christ. And he will give us the desire of our heart when that's what we want the most. If we desire money, the worst thing he could do is give it to us. If we desire a spouse or success at work, the worst thing that could happen to us is for us to get those things because then we get the things that we're worshiping. But instead, as we're identifying these things in our lives that we need to surrender, as we are continually finding ways that we're living like the world and finding satisfaction and even salvation in the things of the world, we find ways that we can live as people who have been freed from pursuing those pointless things. As we repent, as we give them up, as we surrender them to Christ, as we surrender ourselves to Christ, we're going to find these new and refreshing ways to just love him and to be satisfied in him. And so as believers, I guess we could sum up what we learned from this passage in Revelation by realizing that we want to live as people who have been set free from the bondage of sin. We want to live as people who find ultimate satisfaction in Christ. And while we can still enjoy the things of the world, we can enjoy them in a way where we are still looking at Christ more than anything else. Not sharing the spotlight with him, but simply enjoying the good gifts in our lives while ultimately desiring to bring him satisfaction. And I think that ultimately we would all like to live in a way where despite our sin nature, despite our weakness, despite our regular, constant, frustrating failures, Christ isn't going to look at us and see that we are living the same kind of life as those who claim to falsely love him, but that are instead lukewarm and that he would want to spew out of his mouth. So go surrender your idols to Christ and spend a life loving him as you keep growing in spiritual maturity and love for your Lord.